Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Today we're talking to Jordi Boggiano, the co-creator and co-maintainer of Composer, which is PHP's dependency manager. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Reminder, this season, what we're primarily doing is picking one topic every single episode and focusing on talking about that topic in a way that would be helpful to people who are new to the Laravel community. Hopefully, we're going to go into it in interesting ways where those of you who've been around for a while will also have something to learn. But reminder, this is a target at the folks who are new. So two episodes ago, we talked with Taylor about the uh, ethos of Laravel. What is it about and why do we do Laravel? What it makes Laravel different and similar from other frameworks? And then one episode, we talked about how to learn Laravel and how to keep up to date with Laravel. And now, finally, I am ready to talk about technology. And so you'd think that the first thing that I would want to talk about when we're talking about technology is Laravel. But if you're new to PHP, if you're new to Laravel, what you might not know is that Laravel relies heavily and collaborates heavily with lots of other parts of the PHP ecosystem. And most important piece compared to anything else that allows us to work together with other folks is a tool called Composer. So I have invited a guest on who I actually didn't ask how to pronounce his name. And if you've listened to my podcast for ages, you know that I normally get it right before I say it. Um, but I know your first name is Jordi, and I'm going to ask you to uh, pronounce your last name, who's one of the co-creators of Composer, and I think the primary maintainer at this point. So could you say hi, uh, keep me from embarrassing myself with your last name, and just kind of tell a little bit about who you are, where you work, and what your relationship to Composer is? Hey, um, so I'm Jordi Boggiano. That would be the last Boggiano, name. Boggiano, okay. Uh, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that bad with it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's an Italian name. Um, Although I'm from Belgium and I mm-hmm. now live in Switzerland, so... Um, Just keep keeping us guessing. It's all pretty complicated, but <laughs> anyway, I find myself here in Zurich. Yeah, I've been maintaining Composer now for a um, little bit over nine years. Wow. So that doesn't awesome. make anyone younger, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and uh, right now you're you're a consultant mainly, right? You do PHP and Node um, and stuff. So I've I've had my own life. kind of agency for a while, doing doing uh, little websites and whatnot, uh, and that didn't pan out very well because selling like selling to customers was pretty difficult. Uh, so now, actually, as as of over five years I've been working um, on teamup.com which is a online calendar application so like a, oh, okay. somewhat like a Google calendar or something like that but more geared towards groups and since I think it's three and a half or four years um, I've also been working on private packages and that's kind of funding my my open source maintainership for, for composer and packages. Got it. I love it. So, so the primary thing you would think of yourself as, is a, as an open source maintainer and you're kind of using some other things to, to maybe fund that work. Yeah. In a way, that's, I love that. that's a way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I love that. And, and sorry, I thought, I thought I had done my decent research, no, but obviously fine. not. Um, so what, my first question that I had for you before anything else was your Twitter handle. So it's S E L D. E-A-K or A-E-K? And I, I just, I have to know. I've been seeing it for ages. I can never, what is it from? Uh, so it's A-E. Um, oh, A-E. Okay, thanks. But, no, it's fine. I mean, it's 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 so common. Like, I get so many people doing typos. Um, so it, it, it is from a book. Like, it was the, the character name of, um, of some 
yeah, some random character in a random fantasy book when I was 15 or something. I don't know. So was it remember. was it random or was it was it like your favorite book at the time? It was it was kind of a random book. Like <laughs> you just kind of liked the name and thought, "Eh, hey, this is unique, right?" Yeah, exactly. Like and and okay. it, it like turned that. out like the the unique aspect it turned out really well cuz the name is always available like on all the yeah. services. <laughs> I just grab it. Um the gotcha is that yeah, nobody can spell it. So. Can't remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took, uh, I finally switched. For, I had had an acronym that I created as like an eighth grader, I think. And I finally switched over from the acronym, which is totally unique, but totally difficult to remember to my first name and or to my full name. And it's it's been tough. Uh, I finally got mattstoffer.com. So that was like a big moment mm. for me. So, um, okay. So what we're talking about today is composer. And I was about to just go run into it. But my first question is always, if you had to describe this topic to a five-year-old, how would you describe it? I would say these days probably I would I would just describe it the same as I do to like random people I meet that are not uh-huh. that into tech is saying that it's kind of like the app store and I guess okay. most five-year-olds just get it. Yeah, they get that. <laughs> uh, so yeah. All right, so let's, let's take it a step up. Let's say you were talking to an adult who was tech savvy. Let's say they were a JavaScript programmer who knew nothing about PHP. How would you describe Composer to them? All right, so for JavaScript developer, I guess the, the simple answer is it's like NPM, but for mm-hmm. PHP. Um, obviously, there are a few differences there, where um, whereas NPM can be fairly flexible with the dependency resolution because JavaScript just lets you include libraries many, many times in different versions, for example. Yeah. Um, whereas PHP cannot do that. So we need to resolve dependencies in a much stricter way than, than NPM does. Um, but essentially, it boils down to, to the same thing. It's like you give it a list of dependencies and you say, you know, install me this stuff. And it just looks at, um, looks, looks at all the requirements of all the dependencies and, and tries to find a solution of like a dependency set that will actually fulfill all those requirements. And like you said, with NPM, you can potentially have multiple versions, which has some benefits, but yes. I've also been bitten by that in no, a lot of ways. Yeah, it's definitely different. <laughs> yeah, and with Compose, you get one version of each dependency in each project and that's it. Yep. Yeah. So Composer is the tool that we use um, on the command line to pull that in. Could you tell us a little bit about other names we want to think about? I know packages is one of them. What are different things or concepts or ideas in the Composer world that we should be thinking about? All right. So that's uh, that's another big distinction to to npm. Actually, uh, just thinking back back to npm um, is that with npm you have like npm is the command line tool. Npm is the repository on like the, the website that contains all the packages. Uh, it's also the company that's behind it. Although right. now that's yeah. been gobbled up by GitHub, so that's gone, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so it's all fairly fuzzy and confusing, and so we we tried to have different names for different things, and so Composer is really just the command line tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Packagist is uh, kind of a silly name that came from Package Archivist. Um, I had no idea that was what, I mean, it made sense, but I'd never <laughs> yeah, yeah. known that was where it came from. Um, and so that's that's kind of like the package repository, right? It's just uh, yeah. archiving all the packages. And um, so that's the website where you can go find things. Uh, I guess that's really the main 
the main things you need to know about. Well, and there's there's one other thing that I think, and I, I don't actually know how different this is, but you mentioned the fact that in NPM, that it's both the repository and the tool. With Composer, by default, you're pulling all your dependencies from packages, but you can also instruct Composer to pull dependencies from other places, which I don't know right. if that's unique. Is that unique about Composer? Um, I'm, I don't think so, but I... I would say with npm you can also you, you definitely can pull from other sources i just oh, okay i'm not completely aware of how that's set up but yeah okay so it's pretty it's pretty similar to what you're familiar with if you've ever you know dealt with a package.json file composer.json is the same thing and right package package lock.json is the same well a similar to composer.lock so there's you know there's some basic stuff there Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is going to be a little bit obvious for somebody who understands this, but I just kind of wanted to walk through, especially if someone who's listening here isn't familiar with NPM. Um, and, you know, there's probably some people listening who aren't JavaScript developers who might be old school PHP developers um, who haven't had exposure to Composer before. So I just want to kind of ask a couple common use case, very simple questions. So what are the most common, you know, few tasks that people use Composer for? Okay, um, I guess the main one really that I can think of, almost the only one is to yeah. install dependencies, right? Like it's, you you want to depend on this and that open source libraries or even could be like internal libraries which are not open source um, so that we can also support private packages. That's not a, not a problem. And it just glues all of that together. Mm-hmm. And the main other aspect of this is uh, is auto-loading. So every package describes right. uh, how it should be loaded. And, and that way you can just, uh, you get them with Composer, you, you include the Composer auto-loader. And when you use a class name, it's just going to go and figure out where that is and include that file for you. Which, yeah. if you remember using PHP, like... 15 years ago, uh, that was kind of a pain (laughs) because, yeah. And that's a helpful distinction because either, either if you remember PHP from back then, or if you're wondering how your classes just show up, because like in JavaScript, you would have to require it or include it. Right. So there, there's that one line that has to be in your app somewhere that the include vendor autoload, but Laravel and other frameworks already run that one line for you. Mm-hmm. So if you're showing up to Composer the first time, if you define some dependencies and hit Composer install, those dependencies are instantly available in your app anywhere. You don't have to worry about it. So that's one really cool thing about that in terms of the autoloading. Yep. So we talked about Composer.json and it's got a list of all of your dependencies baseline. So we understand there's a, you know, there's an object somewhere in Composer.json, you know, it's key to require that says here are the things to require, but what other kind of pieces of information are in the Composer.json file that you think people might be running across in their early time? You know, some of the flags or um, other, some of the other blocks like require dev. Could you talk through a couple of those? Right. Um, so you would have, yeah, require dev would be f- like um, the equivalent of dev dependencies, I think it's called in NPM, where you have just tools or libraries you would need in development uh, at development time, but not uh, in production. So these you can kind of exclude them by running install dash dash no dev and mm-hmm. they would just be excluded. Um, what else you got? Well, you got the autoload configuration for your package. Uh, you get a whole set of configuration options. Like I can't really think of the most popular ones there, but 
I mean, so this, mi- minimum stability is one of the ones I see the most. I think uh, minimum stability is one, and that's that's actually a good uh, a good one of thinking ahead to what's something that people don't really use. <laughs> yeah, uh, if I may jump ahead, there is. Yeah, please go ahead. Tell us about it a little bit. Is uh, so you have two ways to define stability, and I think that's the whole concept of stability is generally speaking not well understood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually thinking to other package managers. Uh, there's a massive difference there. Uh, most most package managers have like just tags, so you you push releases. Mm-hmm. And we from from the get go wanted to support branches as well. Yeah, and that's it's very convenient because it means you can just like push to your master branch and we reflect that as a dev master version so dev dash master and we just add this dev prefix to kind of indicate that it's a it's a development thing like it's not it's not yeah. a tag like a tag is fixed it's a point in time snapshot of a of a repository but a branch is just something that's fluid and can really change at any time yeah so um so so stability is like by default we run with a minimum stability of stable which means that anything that's alpha beta rc or dev will just not be seen at all by composer and you can either change that with minimum stability and that changes it for all the packages at once which is kind of like you know just a nuclear bomb of of options right uh, of alphas and betas uh, and release candidates that you weren't expecting. Yeah, for for like everything, which might you know yeah. might be a little bit much. Uh, and so the other option we offer is that uh, you can also add um, behind the requirement of any package, you can add at and then stability. So at dev or right. at beta. And that would just allow these kind of, it would change the minimum stability just for that one package. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like most people know that. So I'm really glad you're bringing that up. And can I, can I retell it and then make sure that you tell me that, yeah, this is the right way just so I can kind of rephrase it for folks. Sure. <laughs> so like if, if you were to imagine in composer.json, um, you've got this require block and every single entry in that block. So it's a JavaScript object. So it's like a key value, key value, key value. And the key is the name of the package. So it's going to be something like Titan co slash tlint. And then on the, the value side, it's going to be your version constraint. So it might see, say, caret 1.0 or caret 2.0 or whatever. And so one of the things that Jordy just said was if instead of doing caret 1.0, you did dev hyphen and then a branch name in GitHub or wherever your source control is, you can load any branch that way. So if I'm working on one of our packages and I want to test it in one of our apps, I'll push up a branch with my name in it, you know, MES slash working on whatever. Um, and so I could load it with dev hyphen MES slash whatever, and it would work, but only if my minimum stability was set right. And so what we normally do in this circumstance is we go add a minimum stability key to the whole project set to dev. But I love what you just pointed out there, which is when you do that, now all of your packages are getting the dev versions, the beta and alphas. So instead what I could do, and, and tell me if I'm getting this right, is dev hyphen MES slash whatever at sign DEV. And so within the version constraint, it's at dev. Is that right? Right. So it is right. There's just one little thing right. is that if yeah. if you do explicitly require one specific version, like you mentioned, like a dev mm-hmm. something, you don't need to add the the at part because we just infer it oh. from that. 
But okay, so you don't need at dev if it's a dev hyphen branch, but you do need if it's a yeah, version. Yeah, but it's it's just okay. it's, it's a little optimization we do. No, it's helpful. It's really good. I'm glad you said ex- that. Exactly require a version, and we know it's a it's a version that's like in alpha or whatever. Then it's just no no point in making you repeat yourself. So I appreciate you saying that because I, I actually didn't know that distinction, so I didn't know why it works time sometimes and other times. So so right. what so what what he's saying here is that you only need this at dev thing if you're using a tag. If you want to use like a, a get all tags that oh, uh, his face says no. Tell me more. If no no it's <laughs> it's getting complex right. Um, so you only need at if you use a version constraint. I would say. Like right. a, a range constraint. If you use right, a specific right. constraint right. to an version, then it's fine. Right. So a tilde 1.0 or a right. caret 1.0 or something like that. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I, you're you're 100% right. Because if you if you hit a specific tag 1.0.0, then it would pull that. But if you were to say caret 1.0 at dev, then it would give you something that matches that version constraint. And it would allow things that are stable, stability of dev. Right. Like a beta or an alpha. Okay, cool. Thank you. That's what I needed. <laughs> um, sorry, everybody. We jumped ahead and I was clueless. Um, so yeah, so you said that the most common, oh, we were talking about the different things that are contained in a Composer JSON file. So you mentioned yes. require and require dev. You mentioned some config options. Um, are there any other things that you commonly see in a um, Composer.json file? Commonly see... Like, uh, remember, yeah. I, I remember one of the things is that there's some metadata at the top, like the name and the yes, description obviously. and the tags. Is it packages that mainly uses those? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a very good point. I, these are like, they're so common that I just it's don't so see It's so common them that you anymore, don't even right? think of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the name and description are only required if you're actually publishing the package. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, this would be like needed to... to uh, to put it up on, on packages.org. Um, and then there, there are all the things, like all the other type of uh, what we call links, which are like dependencies between packages, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you have require, you have require dev, but you also have replace and suggest, mm-hmm. for example, and conflict. And those are not that common. But I think yeah. they're also fairly valuable because that's yeah. that's the part where we where we go into like this kind of more advanced dependency resolution compared to npm is that we we do offer all these like full blown features of a, of a dependency manager, which is to replace another package or um, or to say that you provide a certain API or something like that. Yeah. Um, but those are like I, I wouldn't say this is total beginner stuff and, and most likely you sure. won't need it from the get-go but uh, but it's just good to know that the concept exists and and if you think you might need it just go and look just it up no go google it yeah and so those were replace which says this replaces another package and what were the other two uh, provide which kind of like provides typically it's used for providing an, 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 a sort of an api or another package mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's mostly used for like PSRs and stuff like that, where you have um, there's a name that's like a virtual package that people can mm-hmm. provide if they implement that that interface. Interesting. And then people that rely on one, instead of requiring an, a specific implementation, they would just require this virtual package, and then you yeah. can require whichever implementation you want. And through the provide and the require, they kind of meet each other and, and Interesting. Uh, that satisfies the, the the requirement. 
and so if someone from we're familiar with PHP, that would be sort of like the virtual package would be sort of like the interface, and then the the real package that's providing that would be more like the the concrete implementation. Right. All right. So we've talked a little bit about composer.json and obviously there's a ton of other stuff there, but I appreciate how much you're holding yourself back by not talking about all the nerdier stuff or trying to keep it beginner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in most projects, you're going to have a composer.json and a composer.lock. So some folks haven't gotten familiar with how package lock works and some folks might not be familiar with it at all. It might not be JavaScript folks. Could, could you tell us just a little bit about what composer.lock is and, and how it works? Yes, so um, when you do a Composer update, and I'll maybe take this opportunity to really explain this distinction between update and install, which is one of the I love main Thank things I, I see people really like misunderstanding. Um, so, so you have the, the two main comments are like update and install. When you do an update, really what this does is it, takes the requires, it compiles this list of dependencies, figures out what you need, and it writes that down into the composer log file. And that's essentially, that's the update. Like that's just updating the dependencies um, into this log file. And then you have another step, which is install. Uh, and install really only takes the log file. It doesn't look at packages at all. It just reads the log file and it applies that to your vendor directory. So it just lo- goes through the packages. It, it looks at what might already be installed and it, it sees, okay, what, what are the differences? How do I get your vendor directory up to speed with the log file? Uh, so if it's a fresh project and you have nothing, it just installs the, the entire list of packages. If you already have some stuff, you might do some updates and uh, like upgrading packages, downgrading some, removing some, whatever. Like it just does what it needs to do, but it's really only based on this log file. Now, I think what kind of confuses people, and it's it's something we did to be convenient, but it's also maybe confusing, um, is that when you run an install and you don't have a log file, it's just gonna s- generate it for you. Yeah. It's like a and composer update install. without even having typed composer exactly. update. And inversely, if you run composer update, we update the log file, but then we also run the install implicitly yep. because that's most likely what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so they both kind of do the same, but not really, and depending, depending on the state on the of things. And yeah. so, yeah I, I, yeah, I fully understand why people do get confused, but I think the distinction is very important because... In, in some cases, like the way people communicate things are, are actually very confusing when you know these concepts, because like, especially uh, for me as, you know, when they report issues and they're like, oh, I run install and it, it's super slow mm-hmm. or something. And I'm like, if you run install, it's just reading the log file. Like there's no way it can be slow because it's, it's reading a list of 50 packages and just installing that, uh, you know, like it, yeah. it's... Yeah. Well, and the, and then the math, the, the the calculus or whatever that it's doing to figure out what is the right dependency here and there. If there's a composer lock, lock file, it doesn't have to do any of that math because it's already been done. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, composer.lock is sort of like the cache of those, those calculations. And right. so anytime you run composer.install it or composer install it has to have a lock file, otherwise it'll generate one for you. So that's kind of why sometimes running composer install will run a composer update for you beforehand. Yep, and then just to to go back to what it is, so now that we hopefully understand the concept, right? Uh, let's say the main benefit of this is that it ensures that 
several people can work on exactly the same versions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in a team, or more importantly, if you're just deploying to production, let's say, you want to have, like, you, you want to be testing, you know, in development, you have some versions, and then you have maybe your CI or, like, build server that's, uh, that should also run an install. It should not run an update. It should run install because it should have the composer.log file, which should be committed absolutely. Um, and so so that you know that the CI is running with the same versions as you do, and you know that production will also be running with the same versions as you do. Because if not, then suddenly you might have a, a different version in production and you see a bug and you're like, what the hell, it works on my machine, it doesn't work on pod. Yeah. Like there are enough other opportunities yeah. for this to happen without having different <laughs> de- that, dependencies. Yeah. So let's just, you know, minimize the chances of, of things go going wrong. I love it. Um, and that, that actually brings to a really interesting point, which is um, that knowing when to run composer update is really kind of one of the things you're getting at here. And one of the things you said here is don't run composer update on the server. Don't run composer update on your continuous integration tool. But I think that further, I think that a lot of people don't know exactly when is appropriate to run composer update. And, and further, I would actually even say, and some folks don't know when should I run composer update and when should I run composer update and then pass the name of a package. So could you give us some good general practices of like, for example, let's say you were responsible for maintaining an ongoing software as a service application. And I know that you've worked in Symfony, so let's just imagine it's Symfony. But for those who don't know, Symfony and Laravel share, you know, Laravel has a whole bunch of Symfony's component components mm-hmm. in it. So they work very similarly. Um, if you were working on a long running two, three year long project, how often would you be running Composer Update? And would you do Composer Update frequently or you be, would you picking, be picking one um, package at a time? Mm. Uh, so I would say on a day-to-day basis, I would probably be running like updates of specific packages if I need it. Like if mm-hmm. I if I know I need the latest version of some dependency, I would just go and update that one. Um, like doing a blanket update of everything, I would say it's it's something that you should be able to do. Like in an ideal world, you should have enough tests and everything mm-hmm. that you should just be able to to run an update and you know run the CI and you know that it's gonna be fine. Yeah. In reality, it's not always like that, right? So, yeah. so you probably want to be a little careful. But um, let's say I I kind of I tend to do this. Um, I don't know. Like it, it depends. It's sometimes it goes like for a few months be- between like. Yeah. really updating everything and it's usually not great when you do that because you end up having to update a lot yeah um so usually after i did i i went through that i tried to update more regularly again and then eventually you just get busy and it slips <laughs> yep, up go and, back to a few months again yep but um but it's just like when i when i find myself in this situation where you you run an update and a, a good thing you can do there is just run update with dash dash dry run Mm-hmm. And that will just show you what it's gonna do, but it won't actually do anything. Yeah. Um, so there you can kind of get a feel for like how much trouble you're in, let's say. <laughs> um, yeah. And but more, more importantly, like what I usually do is I, I run that and then I say I see okay like this and that package. Um, I know we're like using you know super 
in depth and mm-hmm. and so I really want to go check the change logs yeah before I update them and then other things I know are like just using this one little function that kind of does all the magic and I, I just assume it's gonna be fine because yeah you know, it's you, you kind of have to to weigh the the risk and, and the potential for damage according to to how you're using things and like there's no silver bullet there of, of like how you can really do this, but I would say yeah. if you do have enough tests, uh, running updates like very frequently is probably better because you get you know security fixes and bug fixes and and all that. But you never hit that moment of terror when you have to update six months of packages and, you know, and that's, you know how long yeah. it's going to take to catch all the bugs or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Now that's the other thing is like it's it's when you update everything at once uh, and something goes wrong. Well, you Which don't thing? know. Yeah. Yep. So. Yep. And I, I really appreciate that because one of the things I've often had to train out of uh, junior programmers is, is PHP programmers is you can't just compose or update on all your packages when it's been months without re- recognizing that you mm. just increase the version multiple points on many, many, many packages. Yeah. And so just, it's not that you shouldn't keep up to date. It's not that you should never run composer update on its own without passing a package, but you got to be aware of what you're doing and when you're doing it. And right. it is helpful if there's a couple key packages to really kind of consider just upgrading them more frequently on their own, if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's, a great that point. just boils down to like, it's, it's always like that, right? When you, when you have enough experience, the, the answer always becomes, it depends. Yep. And that's, that's just <laughs> that's so uh, true. It depends. Yeah, I would I would say that this is this is something I'm not going to ask Jordi to sign off on. But baseline, as one of the things that we at Titan often get asked to do is to come into um, software programming projects where it's been running the same PHP app for 10 years or they've had a whole bunch of transitions or something like that. And they just say, we need it to be normalized. Tell us what's the best practices for the PHP community and the Laravel community. Mm-hmm. And so what we kind of do is set up some like really, really bottom line baseline standards and say, let's start by getting to these and then we can work on like better practices. And so with this one, you know, this is not global or anything, but one of the things I've worked with with a few of the folks we work with is just say at bare minimum, and it helps that Laravel has a six month release cycle as does Symphony. At bare minimum every six months you know on a bigger project set aside Mm -hmm. a week upgrade your Laravel version upgrade all your dependencies do a composer update do a full QA scan you know like check everything in your whole application and for a lot of smaller applications that'll take six hours or four hours or two hours but for some people who have really been relying on this and have tons of people on it that might take a little bit of time and it shouldn't take a week but the good news is if you get your boss to sign off in a week and it only (laughs) takes you eight hours to do you can spend the remaining four days writing the test so next time it's not as scary Um, so I wouldn't recommend everybody only do their upgrades once every six months but if you're not if you're doing it less frequently than that that's your first bar to hit and then kind of from there really go back and listen to some of the things that Jordy just said so yep all right let's move on a little bit to challenges in gotchas so what is one of the most common misconceptions people have either about composer as a pack as a tool or about what you know what's something good or bad about working in composer what do you think a lot of people have kind of mixed up now, you, you did already mention um, install versus update. Do you have any others right. or is that kind of your main one? Um, so one that kind of plays into that and that just adds another layer on top maybe is the require command and like uh-huh. really what happens when you run require. Um, so yeah, I was saying most people I think, uh, are, not most people, but some some people I think only require, uh, only rely on require uh, to update packages and 
So just to quickly boil down like what require does essentially it does an edit of the JSON like it's it's like opening the JSON file changing the requirements like the the, the require statement you have there for dependency and then running an update for just that one package you just changed and then as we discussed before that update will run an install right so so when you run right. require you're actually running require which runs update which runs install right and yeah that possibly adds to the confusion but <laughs> got it yeah it's more of these things where you think you're only doing one thing but it's doing multiples right yeah well and interesting i, I want to uh, go to a point there i think there's two practices that I've seen recommended that I've been telling everybody stop doing. And I know it's not exactly where we are, but I want to ask you if I'm right on these. So the first practice is relevant to this is that for a long time, a lot of people were saying, here's how to add my package to your local project, edit Mm -hmm. your composer.json and add a line there and then run composer update. And what I would say is I, I would, I would want you to do composer require that package instead for two reasons. One, because you get the dependency check as you're adding it in and two, because you're only running an update on that package rather than the entire thing all at the same time. Am I right in that? Or do you have any nuance to give there? No, I think that's absolutely correct. And just to add something to that, like in, in composer two, uh, which is not out yet and probably won't be by the time you hear this, but mm-hmm. um, but we've been hard at work on this for the last few months. And so what, what happens there is we changed require a little bit so that in so that in, in most cases it just will do what you want. Like in, in previously there were some cases where it just was failing to to do the update because you it just wasn't updating enough packages like by by mm-hmm. only updating this one new one. Um, so I think that's gonna help as well to to reduce problems there. Um, but what you so, said, I think, is absolutely correct. And so Composer two will actually make what I just recommended even more valid of an option because it's yep. gonna handle the. Okay, great. Um, and the other thing is the idea of com- whether or not you commit your lock file to your repo. So the, the rule I've been giving people, and I want you to tell if I'm right or not, is that if it's a pa- if it's a project, you commit your lock file. If it's a package, you don't commit your lock file. And package meaning something you're going to put up on Packagist. Is that a good rule or not as much? So the, the general rule, like I like to give rules for projects, like for, for applications. Right, mm-hmm. So everything I said before, like about the log file, you should absolutely commit it, yes. Um, you should never run update on, on CI or production. Mm-hmm. That's also true for applications and, and projects. For libraries, it's always a little bit fuzzier because it just it, yeah. it's more in the it, indi- it depends category. Like, <laughs> It's just like I, some people prefer to to just not have a log file there, and we actually recently added a new option that you can put in the in the config. You can have uh, no log. Oh, okay. I think it's uh, no, no. It's uh, sorry. There's a flag, but there's uh, the config is just called log. So if you say log false, it just won't generate the log file anymore. Okay. So if you're really one of these like library developers that does not want to have a log file you can just completely forego it now yeah um and that's you know it's just a long debate and and like people don't agree and so i i don't really want to pronounce myself it's just well you know what helps for me is i actually don't care what package authors do that's my the point, thing yeah my intention is more to say 
You may have seen people out there saying don't commit a lock file. That's only for packages. Not only but, is it only for packages, but it's only a glow. It's, 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 you're saying it's even an opinionated thing. Great. That's even more helpful. Yeah. But the important note for me is when you're building an application, that's not for you. When you're building an application, commit the lock file, period. All right. Okay, cool. So you're, you're on with that one. You, you know, don't want to step into the package argument, but in an application, commit the lock file. All right. All right. Great. Cool. Thank you. Um, okay. So let's talk about this one right here. So my next question for you is what do you think is one of the hardest to resolve problems you see people run into with composer? What gets them the most stuck? Um, most likely it's when the dependency resolution just goes boom. Yeah. Um, which, uh, like, as we, as we mentioned is, more likely to happen with Composer than with, with tools like NPM, just because we do have to resolve this to a single version per package. Mm-hmm. And we cannot go through this uh, like nice hack of just saying, you know, if two packages require two different things, well, whatever, just install them both. Yeah. Um, so in this case, what we, what we have to do is just like throw an error and print yeah. something that sometimes looks like a wall of text um, yeah and usually like i don't know if 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 you do open source you'll you'll sooner or later figure out that most people just do not read their messages <laughs> yep um and then when they tend to be like really really long that just the, the chances of being read are, are going they go drastically lower, down so. <laughs> yep uh, so I think that's that's definitely one of the big challenges, and that's also something we we really worked hard on on addressing in V two. Okay. Uh, so it's not gonna be like magically, you know, telling you oh you have to solve it that that way because yeah. that's the problem is like we don't know how to solve it right like it's yeah. it's just yeah if, that's why if you're we could tell error. you yeah. <laughs> So, so it's still going to no. be an error and you'll, you'll still have to read and, and figure it out. But like the wording has been improved quite a lot. And, um, and we, we try to detect like common, common problems and, and try to hint at solutions when, when we can. Yeah. So, um, I maintain a couple projects that, um, for various reasons have conflicts often. One of them used the replace directive. And so, um, we had a long time where people would get into weird versions, version um, dependency mixes, but also a few of them are globally installed. And we won't get into this on the podcast, but just a quick note. Um, if you have a compo- globally installed Composer package, you're probably a little bit more likely to see dependency conflicts because let's say you have the Laravel installer and Laravel Valet and then three other Laravel-based packages and you installed them all at different times. Each mm. of them will have brought in different versions of their dependencies, but it's not like they're in the same app. They're just on the same computer. So just know that if you're using globally installed Composer packages, and Jordy, you can speak to this if you want, but I'm trying not to kind of derail too much. If you're using globally installed Composer packages, one of the best things you can do is just frequently get them all up to date to their latest version. And it often addresses, at least with the ones I've worked with, it often addresses a lot of those dependency issues. But the reason I was mentioning that is because one of our most common GitHub issues that we deal with in those projects is I'm trying to install this thing and this thing and I'm getting this error and I don't understand why. And most of the time we can just say, oh, well, that's because you have this other package that has version five of this and this version you're trying mm-hmm. to install needs version seven of this and you can just update it. Every once in a while, it doesn't make sense to us. And I think I remember there was a tool, is it Composer Why Not or something like that that gives a more detailed explanation of why you can't install a package? 
Yes. So there's composer why and composer why not, which kind of mm-hmm. you know shows you why something is installed, which kind of backtracks like the dependency tree to show you like which of you require kind of led to this being installed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why not is is kind of more like you know I have this package and I. I but the, the the problem with why not is it only works as far as I remember if uh, if a package is installed, but it's not installed in the right version like if you so Got if it. you're wondering you know why is this version not being installed and it might help you but Got but it. if it's so if not installing two, it at all then it's one. yeah okay yeah. so is there any trick other than you know what go read the error messages if you if you're trying to install something new and you get an error um you know like one of the tricks that i've tried that my brain tells me has worked before but i bet you you're going to tell me it doesn't matter is sometimes it feels like if I delete the vendor directory and delete vendor lock and then composer install, sometimes I get more success than when I run composer update. Is that true or no? That is most likely true in V1. And that's okay. definitely one of the big pain points that we've seen is that like in, in V1, the, the way it behaved is it um, it always like looked at the installed packages as well. Oh, interesting. As, as looking at packages and, and so on. Uh, and V2, we just completely removed that. So when oh, you cool. run an update, it only looks at packages and like only looks at the remote repositories. Great. And the log file if if you are doing a partial update. But uh, but the the installed like stuff just does not play at all in the update. Okay. And that that solves like tons of these weird edge cases where it's like oh if, you know it works there but it doesn't there because I had this previously installed yeah. and then like it's just this was really hell to debug and and like yeah just generally speaking it was usually ending up in, in strange situations yeah um, so so in V one which we're all using today and have been using for nine years. In theory, it's unlikely. The first thing you should do is just go read the error logs. But in theory, you could find yourself in circumstances where when everything else fails, you've read the error logs, your conflict doesn't make sense. Yeah. Try deleting the Venn directory, deleting your composer.lock and installing. And that whole problem will be going away as soon as Composer 2 comes out. Fingers crossed. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Well, um, you'll still get conflicts. Right. And then at sure. that point, let's say you really have to read the error message. Yeah, right. <laughs> But at least you're not in this place where like, oh, well, you know, it might yeah, say yeah. that, but the problem is really, you know, whatever else. Um, man, so I could I could talk your ear off all day and I'm really enjoying this, but I want to make a little bit of space for you to talk about whatever's on your mind and then also for our normal final follow-up stuff. And so I want to skip a couple questions and move on to my main question, which is, is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anything on your mind that you wish you could share or you wish more people understood or you could talk about about Composer or about packages or dependency management in general? Um, so I guess I, I did mention already, I think lots of things, uh, I mean, on my mind right now is like mostly V2 because I've been looking at this the entire week, uh, yeah. just, just trying to push forward there a lot. Uh, I just published a blog post today, which, uh, I guess will be pretty old by the time this is published, but <laughs> I'll still put it in the show notes, um, so. but whatever, like it's, it's, um, I mean, it still should be news to to most people because I don't expect everyone will will go jump on V2 immediately. Sure. Uh, but the blog post is essentially asking people to go and test it uh, nice. a little bit more because we we really opened up. I mean, it was up there on GitHub for the whole time, but we we started asking people a few weeks ago to test. 
we got tons of feedback and uh, and like issue reports and a bunch of new features as well. Uh, and now it's it's really getting to a point where I feel like we're almost almost there with the release. So um, getting more eyes on it and and more more people to test is definitely critical. Well, can I ask you a question about um about Composer two real quick? Sure. So let's say I, you know, finally just got a handle on Composer 1, or maybe let's say I'm just getting started in Laravel. I read this, I listen to this podcast and, you know, it's May 10th or whatever, and you haven't released Composer 2, but I know it's coming. What does the upgrade path look both in terms of my code and also in terms of my knowledge? Is it going to be completely seamless? All your Composer.json files look exactly the same using the same commands. Is it going to be a little bit different or is it going to be pretty major difference? It's... For I would say for most like users that are just using the command line tool, um, it should be seamless. Like we're, okay. we're aiming for seamless. I think the the main pain points are gonna be around plugins because okay. plugins all require like a specific version of of Composer. Yeah. And so that means that to upgrade to V two, you're gonna have to upgrade to to a version of those plugins which supports V two. Yeah. Uh, when you so say plugins, you mean composer plugins like Prestissimo, not PHP. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so yes, uh, composer specific plugins, which depending on the the community, are more or less like I, I'm not entirely sure about Laravel, but I, I know in some, mostly like in the more CMSE mm-hmm. um, like application style stuff. They they tend to have lots of plugins that do like various things. Um, sometimes for legacy reasons but uh, mm-hmm. but anyway like they, they just there, there are quite a few plugins which are really popular and and so the that that's gonna be the biggest hurdle I think in terms of update the rest like for for most end users this really shouldn't change much I think it it's gonna get faster it's gonna get more reliable more deterministic um and much better error messages as well when when things don't go right. So, love it. So don't don't hold off on learning Composer now because you know two is coming out. Don't no, worry no, no. about Composer two and coming out or anything like that. And just just for everyone to know, if you aren't familiar with the idea, there as far as I know, there are no common Composer plugins used in Laravel community. There are folks who are really excited about a Composer plugin here, a Composer plugin plugin there. But if if you hear that phrase Composer plugin and it doesn't trigger a memory in your mind, then you're probably not using any, and you probably don't need to worry about that upgrade path. So again, if you're not already nerding out about customizing your your Composer with a plugin, don't stress that that's going to make it hard to upgrade your Laravel apps because you probably don't have any in there. Right. Awesome. I love that. Um, before I dig a little bit further, you know, last couple of questions. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Um, well, just one little plug maybe is, would be about private packages. Um, Go for it. <laughs> so, so just to mention like private packages because that's that's kind of our, our bread and butter. Um, so that's that's something we started a few years back, as I mentioned, and it's essentially like private hosting for for if you have like private source code that you want to install as as dependencies, but it also does like mirroring of all the open source stuff you're using, and we also have now we're adding um, like security notifications and automatic updates and so on. So that's that's a paid service that we run on the side. So that's on packages.com. 
and it's kind of like the commercial version of, of packages.org right. in a way um, and that so helps us like fund all the all the open source development as well and, and like run the servers and, and whatnot who who would be the mo- the primary target of private packages would it be uh, a consultancy like me or would it more be like a company that has their own internal apps that they're running uh, I would say both. Like we we really have both types of customers. We have uh, yeah, we have consultancies that actually like have multiple organizations mm-hmm. that they run for their customers, or um, we have yeah, we have like just products that are using it as well for for their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have kind of a marketplace product that like if you want to sell packages and like. Um, like offer offer a composer repository for your yeah. paid packages, let's say. Uh, so we offer that as well with like an API, so you can manage like tokens and and so on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are like a few options of of uh, good use cases. Awesome. Um, I'll ask you for more plugs later, but I got two more questions for you before we get to plugs. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Number one, if somebody wants to learn more about Composer, if they want to dig deeper into how it works or just learn more about it in general, where would you recommend they go? Um, So I had a good thing there and I really don't know. Uh, (laughs) I got one. Uh, If you just go search Jordy's name on YouTube. There's five or six uh, talks that he gives that do, going into various aspects of it, so that's a start. Right. You know, there, there are a few there are a few talks. Um, so actually, that's that's the only one I found was uh, a talk called "Composer Best Practices" by Niels, which is the okay. um, the other the other co-maintainer on the mm-hmm. on the project. And I think that's that's I would say that one is mostly like if you're looking for a tutorial or something like this one will actually explain things. Well, my talks were mostly about like the open source process and, and so mm-hmm. on, which, you know, might be interesting anyway, but yeah. not really. Well, you gave one at um, Laracon EU five years ago that was a deep dive into Composer. And I think that would be a good kind of like next step as well. So maybe All those right. two, your your deep dive talk and then Niels's, um, I forget what you called it, but then Niels's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll link you up afterwards. Okay, and I'll put all this in the show notes, everybody. Okay. All right. So my last question for you before we talk about any other plugs or ways to follow for you, uh, you have on your Twitter profile, a place where if anybody wants to support your open source stuff, they can go buy yourself off an Amazon list, wish list. And I saw that you have four or five Japanese whiskeys on there. So I have had Japanese whiskeys twice. And to me, it tasted like scotch, but smoother. So I'm very interested. Let's say that a listener only knows about American and Irish and whatever else whiskeys and doesn't understand anything about Japanese whiskey. Could you give us like a really quick introduction to Japanese whiskey? <laughs> um... Yeah, so I think actually the way you described it is is very accurate. Like that's okay. Um, I I find that they tend to be really really smooth. Um, mm-hmm. And but to be honest, it's it's not like I have an obsession with Japanese whiskeys. I think it's just uh, I had a few whiskeys on there, and all the others are gone. <laughs> <laughs> so those are just the ones that were left over. Oh, that's yeah. hilarious! I was just like, um, oh, this guy's like a connoisseur or something. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I do, I do like them, but uh, for some okay, reason, well, let, let me step it back then. <laughs> if you had other stuff on there, what is your like top favorite whiskey or scotch or whatever of all time? Um, so I, I mostly enjoy the the peaty ones. I have to say, me too. So they, yes, they tend to have more of a strong like smoky, smoky, smoky yeah. taste. 
Um, but the, the, but I find like if not that, then I find the Japanese ones which are very very smooth are uh-huh. a good uh, counterpoint to that. Okay. Do you have a favorite uh, PD whiskey? Hmm. Because I know like I know the main ones, you know, like Lagavulin and stuff like that. But I I don't know if those yeah. are like the main ones, and there's the better ones or. Well, hmm. I mean, Lagavulin is is definitely a good you know it's a, it's a good. Thing you yeah. you'll find everywhere and it's like it's a decent test. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if like I'm I'm not really one to pick like favorites. I, That's fine. I like, I like to if buy, you if if I give you a good whiskey, you're going to drink the good whiskey. <laughs> it has right, doesn't have right. to be better than the other one, right? <laughs> cool. Well, it's still it's still get to ge- to geek out on this a little bit. Sure. Um, one one last question for you there. Do you like Scotch much? Um. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had the Balvini? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Balvini is like one of my favorite. It's, it's relatively approachable. It's like, it's on the high level of, you can buy it at every liquor store. So it's not like the super fancy, yeah. but it's not cheap either. And it was the first scotch I ever had. So it's got like a special place in my heart. So every time okay. I talk to somebody about scotch, I've got a plug that they should go try, you know, one of the 18 <laughs> or 12 or something like that of a Balvini. So, yeah. All right. Thank you for letting me nerd about that for a minute. So before no, we fun. go, how can people follow you? Um, are there any other plugs you'd like to make? So you said private packages. Are there any other plugs or anything that you want to just kind of hook up before we head out for today? Uh, no, I think that's, yeah, that's about okay. it for me. Uh, links to you your website me, and your Twitter and mostly, everything. Yeah. Twitter is, I think that's really the only channel I use for communication at this point. <laughs> so. so how do you say that the handle, how do you say the guy's name? Uh, Seldak. Seldak. Okay, cool. I didn't Seldak, know if it was Dake yeah. or Dak. Seldak. Yeah, okay, I, cool. I don't know. It's you know. I'm, <laughs> At this I'm, point, nobody knows. Yeah, I'm French speaking originally, so I would yeah. just I would say Seldak in French, but Seldak. so you okay, pronounce cool. more the A E. Right. Got it. it, it doesn't I love it. Really matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can all make it up in our heads and say it a little bit different each time. And uh, right. when we see you in person, each of us will will choose our individual pronunciation of your Twitter handle to greet you. So. Sounds good. <laughs> all right, Jordy, this was a ton of fun and I really appreciate you taking your time. Um, all yeah. this will be in the show notes, y'all. Um, so you'll know how to follow him and how to catch up with him and learn all the stuff he did here. And as always, if you have any questions for any either of us about this, hit me up. I'm Stauffer Matt at Twitter. He's Seldak, Seldak on Twitter. And I'm sure we'd be happy to answer any questions that came up. So thank you all so much and I'll see you later. All right, thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm.